Listen up. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the podcast participants and not to any participants, employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. You know, for fun. So lighten up and enjoy. Hello, Stomping Jen. Oh my goodness, hello. You're animated. I... <laughs> nice to see you. <laughs> nice to see you. I'm really excited for our conversation this week. Um, we have on the show, Caitlin Sapita, who is a candidate for Hampshire County, Massachusetts Sheriff. This is exciting. I, I have lots of questions. Yeah, me too. First and foremost, do they wear a badge? Yeah. Um, <laughs> also... I'll ask it now as a teaser. What does a sheriff do? I really don't even know. So we're going to lead off with that question. Awesome. And we're going to talk about a lot of other stuff. Um, and just to um, a little bit of background on Caitlin, um, she um, is a registered nurse um, with over a decade of correctional experience um, and nearly all of it in our Hampshire County Um Houses of Correction, yeah, uh, Massachusetts. Um, and uh, as a well-versed, educated, and trained professional, um, Caitlin is ready to lead the Hampshire County Sheriff's Office into the next phase of evolution um, in corrections and uh, through the ongoing um, pandemic, right? That's still happening. Um, oh, it, yeah. With an eye towards the future. We're going to ask all about this. Cool. Right, and uh, we have many, many questions. Yes. Are you ready? I am so ready. Okay, here we go. The Soft Serve Podcast. Creamy, delicious ideas without the creepy truck. Well, Stomping Jen. Yeah. I'm not going to sing. Oh, excellent. Yeah, I mean, uh, let's say hello to Caitlin. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Brad. Hi, Jen. Hi. Thank you for joining us. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. My first podcast. I'm very excited to be on with you folks. Yeah, I mean, podcasts podcasts are easy. It's just just talking, so um I know you'll do fine. I mean, you're running um you're running in an election. That's exciting. So I imagine you must do a lot of talking with people as part of that. I do a lot of talking. I hear my voice a lot lately. Yeah, how I do you apologize more profusely often, but there's a lot of talking involved in a race this big. Yeah. yeah. How do you actually, this is an interesting question. Like, how do you feel about hearing your voice now so much? You know, like as a podcaster, I often listen to my own podcast just to like see what I can improve. How did this go? And like, I'm so used to hearing my own voice now. Like, I can actually like enjoy the shows for what they are. I don't know. Do you have any? Like, are you used to hearing your voice now, like after being out there so long? I mean, I think I am. I have, I don't know, probably 25 events scheduled between now and the primary. So I'm going to be hearing it a whole lot more 
in bigger forums and in different forms of media, but I think I'm getting used to it. Cool. Yeah. Um, so I asked this question um, before we played our intro music. Um, what what exactly does a sheriff do? I mean, this is the office you're running for. Um, the election is in early September, right? Is it September 5th? September 6th. September 6th. Okay, folks. So Don't send people to the polls um, on the wrong day. Yep. September 6th is the election. And um, you're running for Hampshire County Sheriff. Now, what does a sheriff do? I think that's a really great question. And like you said, I think a lot of people don't know what a sheriff does. The sheriff's primary legal responsibility is the safe, orderly, and efficient running of the jail facility in Northampton that houses both pretrial and sentenced inmates for short durations of time and all of the ancillary facilities that belong to the sheriff's office. There's a civil process division that does legal servings, like eviction notices, divorce decrees, things like that. There's also a community corrections portion of it. There are very minor kind of other ancillary things that happen, like our triad division, which works with our senior communities in the county, but primarily that focuses at the jail itself. Okay, so it's a it's a pretty big scope of operations that the, the sheriff is responsible for overseeing and administrating. I, yes and no. I mean, I guess yes, when you say it the way that I did, it does seem like that. But there are 14 houses of correction in this state, all run by separate sheriffs outside of the houses of correction and the sheriff's departments that encompass the islands um, out in Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket. Hampshire County is the smallest. Hmm. We're the smallest population wise. We're the smallest budget wise. We are the smallest um, in terms of, you know, number of uh, individuals that we're housing and caring for. So in that way, in comparison to a place even like next door, like Hamden County, which is the second largest, we're pretty tiny. Hmm. Does that pose any unique challenges being one of the smaller um, uh, purviews under the, the sheriff's um, jurisdiction there? Like being, does that have any specific unique challenges? I don't know if it's necessarily challenges, but it offers unique opportunities because there's so few individuals that you're caring for in comparison to these other larger counties. Like the census today is 114 individuals. It gives you opportunity to really kind of focus your treatment opportunities, focus your staff to really, really hone in on what's going to be tailored to this community, what's tailored to the individuals in your care. And you can be a lot more focused in scope. Okay. Now, one of your um, one of your campaign messages is security focused, humanity forward. I found mm-hmm. that to be really interesting, um, mm-hmm. and it a- appealed to me as somebody who cares deeply about people and considers themselves like a a, a humanitarian. So, can you mm-hmm. talk a little to us about that message and you know what it means and what you're trying to say to people with that? Sure. We do have to remember that the sheriff is in charge of a correctional facility, and it is first and foremost that it is a house of correction where people are removed from the general uh, population of society for whatever reason. It's not the sheriff's responsibility to remove them. We care for them once we have them, but we do have them and it needs to be run in a secure manner. It needs to be run in a secure manner for the individuals in our care and for the individuals in our employee as well. 
And I think running a very secure facility allows other things to be facilitated more easily and to have everything run more easily. It's better for the individuals in our care to receive treatment, to receive training if they know they're in a safe place. And I think our employees function better as well. So if we keep that at the forefront, security, I think it allows all other things to happen. That being said, everybody in our care is a person, first and foremost. They have a name, they have a history, they have a story, they have a family, they have a goal for themselves that we need to be mindful of, and we need to treat that. Like you said at the beginning, I'm a registered nurse. This is my background. It's a background of caring and person-centric work. And I think coming from that type of background lends a really unique lens to look at corrections through because my background is so human forward. Um, And I think marrying those two with this human-centric focus while running a very safe and secure facility is a really kind of great thing to try to marry. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. You get a lot of people that think, you know, oh, it's a jail, we have to warehouse them, throw away the key, that type of thing. And that's very, very old thinking. Yeah. And I don't think I don't think the idea of running a safe, orderly facility and one that puts the individual at the center of all the work is a mutually exclusive idea. Yeah. I, I think mean- we need to coming around to the idea that those two should and need to be married together. Yeah. I mean, you took that thought right out of my head. I was thinking to myself, like so many people have that perspective, right? That, um, that we should just, you know, lock people up and throw away the key and that they're, you know, they cease to become people, right? Once they enter a a correctional facility. And I don't believe that personally, you know, I think we have, we have to always see people as human beings. Um, I think the more the correctional system in general uh, as an institution is a dehumanizing experience. And I think the more humanity we can add back into it, the more success we're going to see for the individuals in our care. That success reduces recidivism and ultimately just leads to greater success. And I think the more that we can start as a as a facility, as a you know, what I would hope to be as an administrator and as a community start to really kind of see that and focus on that. I think the more success we'll have for the individuals in our care. Yeah. And how did you, how did you come to start your nursing career in the correction space? Well, nursing is a second career for me. I had a life in science before this. um, And I came to nursing kind of later in life. And I wanted to always have a nursing job that served an underserved population because I feel like everybody deserves a high quality level of nursing care, regardless of what your status in life is. I wasn't a huge fan of bedside nursing. I wanted patients who could walk and talk and feed themselves. And I thought that, you know, this opportunity came about at the jail up in Northampton. And I thought, what a really great opportunity to work with people from my community who were in a largely disadvantaged situation, but who deserve really, really good care and who in general lack opportunity to that care. So what a great way for me to be of service. What, what was that like for you um, as a new nurse and entering kind of your nursing career in a jail? Like, was that, what was that experience like for you? Was it what you expected? Was it not what you expected? 
I don't think it was like what I expected. There's a fair bit more freedom for the individuals there than I think I was anticipating, um, which is not necessarily a, a bad thing, but certainly not anything I had I had known about. But no, overall, it was a really, I don't know, it was a, I don't want to say nice, but it was, it was a good experience when I first started. Uh, it didn't feel unsafe. It didn't feel frightening. And it certainly challenged my nursing skills in ways that I had never been challenged in any other nursing path I had taken before that. It's a different set of challenges. It's a different population and community that you're dealing with. And it is situations unlike anything else that you will see in any other arena of nursing. Hmm. Can you can you describe any of those challenges? I'm sure like our, our listeners' imaginations are are running wild <laughs> thinking, you know, like thinking about what they see in movies and TV shows. And I'm guessing maybe exactly. that that doesn't necessarily match reality. Maybe it does. I don't know. It's not. For the most part, it does not. And I think that's unfortunately part of what's what Corrections has done to itself in not educating the public about who it is we are, what it is we do, and the role that we serve. So a lot of people's perceptions of jails and prisons are what they see in scripted media, Mm -hmm. which is largely sensationalized and not generally based in truth, by and large. What you're seeing in correctional facilities more and more, now I started in corrections 10 years ago and things were a little bit different there, but really in the past five or so, we've seen this massive shift towards um, substance abuse issues, particularly opioid epidemic. Correctional facilities are ground zero for dealing with the opioid epidemic in this country. When I first started 10 years ago, I don't know, maybe 20, 25% of the people coming into the jail had some sort of like opiate issue. It really wasn't all that common. I saw a lot more alcoholic issues um, and a lot more violent, well, not violent crime, but more, I don't know, what we would think of criminals, I suppose, as being then. And in the last five years, it's really shifted very, very significantly to dealing nearly primarily with substance abuse issues in the individuals coming into our care. In Hampshire County, that number is approximately 80% of individuals walking through the door have a substance abuse issue, primarily opiates. And that is the number one nursing thing that we are seeing without a doubt. It's the number one concern and the number one problem of all of the individuals coming into our facility is some sort of substance abuse issue and or a co-committant mental health disorder. It's really so much more of what we're seeing. Corrections is a really kind of funny place because you get people who are there for very short terms sometimes, but you get folks that could be sentenced to two and a half year terms and then a two and a half on and after. So you have them there for five years and it becomes a long-term residential care facility. So I do long-term care management as well. And you see everything across the gamut. I like to say in correctional nursing that we are jack of all trades, master of none. You have to know a little bit about everything, but I don't know everything about anything. You see altercations and fights where you're dealing with acute, you know, traumatic injuries. You're dealing with long-term diabetic management. You're dealing with cognitive declines. You're dealing with physical declines, um, mental health nursing, psychiatric nursing, substance abuse, you know, you name it, we see it in the furthest part of the spectrum that you can imagine because a lot of these folks, the vast majority of these folks that we see 
have little to no access to medical care on their own, independently on the outside. Or if they do, they tend to be involved in other things and not their health care, i.e. they're wrapped up in their drug addiction. They're wrapped up in trying to figure out where, you know, their next meal is coming from because they're homeless. They're trying to get their feet up under them and get a job, you know, and making that doctor's appointment to deal with their diabetes isn't necessarily high on the priority list. So we see people who have neglected their health care um, as well. And then when they when they come in, because they're in the care of um, of the county, I guess it, it's incumbent upon the the correctional facility to take care of them. Like, so do do correctional facilities like have? This is going to be this stupid question, but do they have like hospitals and doctor offices that that the um, that the um, the people who are in the system can go and go to when they're experiencing a medical issue? And is that where you work as a nurse, like in those facilities? So so I'll speak about Hampshire County in particular. Um, Some facilities do have like large kind of treatment areas. We have a medical department where we deal with small kind of issues, day-to-day stuff, education, long-term chronic care. If somebody needs surgery, they're going to go out to the hospital, Mm -hmm. just like you and I would. They'll go with an officer escort and they're going to be handcuffed, but they're going to go get that surgery just like you and I would. If they need to go see a specialist, because we have a, there is a physician attached to the facility, but again, he's a generalist. He's not a cardiologist. He's not a gastroenterologist. If you need to have chronic follow-up care because you have hepatitis or you have high blood pressure, or you need to see a special eye doctor, you're going to go out and do that. The facility has contracts with providers on the outside and you, the individual, go out. I think an interesting thing that not a lot of folks know is that incarcerated individuals are the only class of people in the United States who have a constitutional requirement to receive access to health care in the same fashion that you and I do. Hmm. So there's, I think, a lot of misinformation about the community that somehow when people go to jail, they get um, substandard care or they get care that is less than in the community, it's literally a legal requirement that they receive the same access that you and I do. And they're the only class of individual that is allowed, that is afforded that right. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. That makes sense to me in some ways. Um, I think when I think about, you know, the, the, um, what results from confining people, right. They, they, they don't have access to those. They have no access to those services otherwise. So we, you know, we have to provide them. Um, Caitlin, I wanted to, oh, go ahead, Jen. Did you have a question? Well, I was just thinking of like, you know, how much you were talking about like mental health and, you know, how there's such a push now for, you know, policing and, you know, the separation with mental health issues and um, addiction issues. And um, it seems like from what you're saying, that sort of like confirms like, you know, are you guys set up to be able to like do rehab with these folks when they come into the facility or do you have to send them out or, you know, like how does any of that kind of work? And and just, I just have so many questions like all of a sudden, like that have to do with, you know, related to our, you know, police, our local municipal police departments and how they have to deal with these kinds of issues. And then, you know, unfortunately these folks end up in the correctional facility with these issues. They do. It's really unfortunate. And I think part of it's, it's a hard question to answer because you have people on the outside 
that really need very long-term intensive mental health therapies and that need really intensive, ideally inpatient mental health treatment. Unfortunately, in our area and in, I think, probably society at large, uh, we don't have access to that. There aren't enough inpatient beds. There are not enough psychiatrists. There are not enough counselors. There's not enough clinicians. And unfortunately, a lot of those people have true mental health illnesses. And since we have closed down the state hospitals and we've moved to group homes, um, which can't always manage the same um intensity level with which these folks for uh, by and large need treatment they end up slipping through the cracks and they ultimately end up not being able to live within the confines of the laws of our society and so they get arrested and they come to jails are jails any better equipped to deal with this the answer is no yeah we're not i'll speak for hampshire county again we don't have um as large a mental health department, we, we don't have a mental health department, really. We contract with an outside provider for mental health services. Um, it's not enough to deal with what we have. Um, the statistics now are approximately 70% of the individuals coming into our care have a, they state that they have a mental health diagnosis. Somewhere between 50, 50 and 55% of them actually have a confirmed facility-made diagnosis of some mental health disorder. So some, some range between that all ends up on the mental health caseload. There are not enough clinicians to deal with it. There are not enough clinicians to be able to do real intensive therapy, intensive rehab. That just doesn't exist. Mm. We're not a place for that. But we are, as a correctional facility, expected to kind of fill the gaps in the social safety nets that exist and whose holes keep getting bigger and bigger as the issues in society get larger and larger. And we're having a hard time keeping our heads above water doing that. Yeah. Um, think Thinking about um, doing nursing in the correctional facilities, in that environment, what did you learn from doing that work? That people really just want to be recognized as a human. Uh, so many of the people who end up coming through a correctional facility have had trauma in their lives, significant trauma for a lot of them, and have felt um, dehumanized and have felt other in their lives and they really just want to be looked at as a person and if you can make that connection with somebody pretty quickly which i mean nurses are trained to kind of do that you know we make yeah. connections with folks really really fast and we can get them into comfortable and uncomfortable decisions in situations real quick um it's it's part of our nature if you can recognize somebody and make that connection pretty quickly you can kind of get them on board with what you need to do with them and most everybody just wants to be recognized as a person who wants to be taken care of. And we all have to understand coming into nursing, and this is part of what we learn in nursing school, is that you meet patients where they're at. I want to try to help you, the patient, get to whatever your goal is for yourself. It's not my goal for you. My goal for you and your goal for you may be two different things. But my focus as the provider needs to be your goal and helping you get to wherever that is. And if you can kind of step aside from yourself and realize who you're trying to help, it makes things a lot easier. 
And I think if you start to show people that with some hard work and really kind of buying into the situation that they can have some success, you can start to move those goalposts for them a little bit and expect them to reach a little bit higher for themselves. And that sense of accomplishment in doing something and seeing success, even if it's really, really small for themselves, kind of opens up this door and it's like, oh, you know, maybe I, maybe I'm not thinking enough of myself. Yeah. How, um, how has doing nursing in that environment changed you as a person, like thinking about where you started and where you are now? Corrections is a hard place to be a nurse. I say all the time that nursing is a profession of yes and corrections is a field of no. You have to very clearly set professional boundaries because you do have to realize that there are some, not most, but some unsavory people that you're going to be dealing with. And you do need to be cognizant of that from a safety perspective. So it's very, very important from kind of the get-go to really kind of set up a professional wall. You can't be jokey. You can't be, you know, super personal with patients like you could maybe if you worked in a doctor's office or if you worked in a school system, something like that. There is no touchy-feely to nursing. In nursing school, they teach you how to do bed baths and back rubs before everybody goes to bed at night, you know, if you're working in a hospital. You do not do that in corrections. It changes a little bit of who you are because you have to remove some of that, that touch from your practice, which is so much what we learn in nursing school to be empathetic Mm. and to be, um, you know, softer at times. And that's just not something that you can do easily in a correctional facility. And that's not to say that you have to be unfriendly or harsh, but there's certainly a professional boundary that has to be set in corrections, uh, different than it has to be set in any other discipline. Mm. So it jades you a little bit because the concern always is, am I being manipulated? Is there kind of a secondary gain happening or, you know, is that just my professional wall? Yeah. So it takes a little bit of you like that. Mm. Mm, Thank you for that answer. Um, so uh, thinking thinking about as I was reading through some of your uh, campaign materials, um, you've said that at the current moment, um, there's a disconnect between uh, the local and uh, Hampshire County um, sheriff's communities. Can you tell us mm-hmm. a little bit more about that? I think I touched on it there just for a second and saying that there have been missed opportunities for the sheriff's office to do some community education and some community outreach mm-hmm. about what it is the sheriff's office does, who we are, what our role is, and what we are providing to the community, and then in turn what the community can provide to us. Ideally, this is a give and take situation where we provide some element of a public safety um, you know piece to the puzzle. And in turn, we get some, you know, give from the community in terms of being receptive to taking individuals back into the community and giving them choices and opportunities and also kind of um, providing in some cases those opportunities through job placement partnerships, work release, volunteering, that kind of thing. So I think that there's been some missed opportunities to have um, people understand who we are and what we do and thereby buy more into our goals or what our goals I think should be. Mm-hmm. So a lot, it sounds like a lot, a 
piece of this is is educating uh, the community. Very much so. So fortuitously, and I didn't plan this, certainly, the ACLU of Massachusetts in April started a a voter education campaign called Know Your Sheriff, which is a great campaign. But they started it, they did a campaign a few years ago called What a Difference a DA Makes. And they did a voter education um, initiative on that too and found that so few people knew who their DA was and what it was that they did. And the voter education People who understood more voted more. So they did a survey um, recently before the campaign started about, you know, do you know your sheriff? Do you know what a sheriff does? Like you asked Brad, you know, yeah. what's the role of the sheriff, the community, things like that. And in the state of Massachusetts, only 17% of respondents could name who their sheriff is. In Hampshire County, it was even less than that. It's 13%. Yeah. That's problematic yeah i mean i'm the, a, i'm embarrassed to say i can't name our current sheriff yep. i don't know stomping jen most, most people can't and in all of the time that i've spent in the community you know early on particularly in this campaign with you know getting signatures to get on the ballot and things like that most people didn't know who the sheriff was so i think that the um, ACLU's kind of message there is that if we don't know what or who the sheriff is, what the sheriff does, how is it that we are being educated voters? Right. When what, when what you ultimately end up learning about the sheriff is that they have a significant amount of impact, a significant amount of opportunity for for good and bad, depending upon how this all swings. Um when people understand more the impact that the sheriff can have, they're much more likely to vote and not leave that box unchecked, mm. which is what they found a lot of folks did. Yeah. And, and I think um, what I'm hearing you say is, you know, a, a sheriff brings a whole lot of stuff into the job with them, right? Um, maybe their political ideology, mm -hmm. their mm -hmm. ideologies on, um, corrections models, um, ideas on substance abuse treatment, on mental health, yep. on programming, all of that kind of stuff. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the sheriff, the sheriff in the state of Massachusetts is elected to a six year term. It's the longest in the state. It's the longest in the nation. There is no other state that has a six year term for their sheriff. That's good and bad. That gives you as the sheriff ample opportunity to put your plans into place. But if you're not liking what your sheriff is doing, right. you're stuck with that person for a long time. And the only recourse is the voter. The sheriff answers to no one else. The sheriff doesn't answer to the governor. He doesn't answer to the attorney general. He answers only to the electorate outside of, you know, maybe him committing a significant crime and he's removed from office that way. But if you just don't like what your sheriff's doing, you have six years to sit with that. And it's a long time. Mm. And the sheriff gets to decide how his individual institution is run. And you're very right. When you're coming to it with a certain set of political notions, a certain set of ideas about whether substance abuse treatment is valid or worth it, or is this the model I want to run, they can do whatever they'd like within the confines of the law. If they're not legally required to do something or provide something, they don't have to. This this may be a stupid question, but in the election and on the ballot, are there like Republican sheriffs candidates and Democratic sheriffs candidates, or is it like all the candidates for sheriff run against each other? Like, how does that? How does this even work? No, nope, there are. It is a partied race. 
Okay. So there will be a Democratic primary this year with the incumbent myself and another challenger. And then there is not presently any other challenger from another party. If someone on the Republican side garners 500 write-in votes, they will be the party's nominee, but there's presently no nominee at all. So unless 500 people get together and decide that you know they have a name in mind, um, the primary will essentially be winner take all. And it will be okay. the only name then on the general election ballot in November. Okay. All right. So you're you're running, Caitlin, on the, the Democratic the Democrat ticket for the sheriff's candidates against the the incumbent and another candidate. Okay, great. And I want to just um, I want to pause and tell people really quickly um, in our show notes for this podcast um, episode, we're going to have links to um, Caitlin's website, um, uh, um, an opportunity to be able to donate to Caitlin's campaign, Caitlin's Facebook page. We have a link in there to the Know Your Sheriff. Uh, f- uh, from the ACLU website. So all of these things we're talking about here, um, including um, Caitlin's um, mission statement that we're going to talk about in a minute and um, the, the concepts that support her mission statement, you can get links to all of this stuff in the show notes, okay? So make sure you go there and you look at this stuff, okay? Um, Thank you. Yeah. Um, so your mission statement, Caitlin, um, and I, I was reading through your website um, earlier in the week, and it is security, humanity, and efficiency. And I think we've heard a lot about security and humanity, um, you know, and, and I think I want to ask a little bit about the efficiency side. And, and your mission statement has these four areas of focus that kind of... Um, hold it up, I think. Um, one is facility, one is treatment, one is growth, and one is engagement. So mm-hmm. I would imagine efficiency applies to all of those things, but especially um, when it comes to ideas about uh, facilities and how we can make our facilities work better and improve them. So I, do you want to talk a little bit about um, the facilities? Sure. Uh, the Hampshire County Jail is an antiquated facility as far as jails go. It was built in 1984. It's one of the older facilities and it shows its age. Um, And the current administration continues to kind of run things in what I would consider to be a pretty antiquated way, pretty archaic way. We still do record keepings on ink ribbon typewriters. um, Yep. That in every single case sit next to a computer with a perfectly with a perfectly appropriate software package on it that can be doing everything that we need to be doing, but we insist on keeping typed records on a typewriter Oof. for no real good reason other than we've always done it this way. Oh and I God. think that's what happens when you get I know everybody's mind is blowing right now. <laughs> I mean it's a common theme in, in a lot of government and municipality, I well, would say. Yeah. And I'm thinking about all of the the double spaces at the end of sentences. Oh I was arguing with somebody about this today, Caitlin, in my work. Like, we were arguing about whether or not there should be double spaces after a period. And I was like, no, that's from typewriters. We don't do that anymore. <laughs> Except when you have a typewriter and then you do. Right. So it's, it's just, I mean, 
there's no reason why the typewriter can't be removed and we simply use the software package that exists that nearly every other correctional facility in the state uses. There aren't other correctional facilities that use typewriters this way. So there just aren't. This is a choice that we could choose to not make anymore. That's fine. Training is another portion of it. Training is done. We pull um, staff off of their posts, off of the floors, into a training room to sit down and watch a PowerPoint that in many cases is four, five, six years old and not the way we do anything anymore, not up to date legally. And as we're going through the PowerPoint, we're like, well, it's not like this anymore. Well, we don't quite do it like this anymore. And we sign off your training in a three ring binder. There are more efficient ways to be doing this. Mm -hmm. There are again, training module packages that are correction specific, Power DMS, Lexapro, there's a couple of others um, that for the initial outward cost, which is, um, I don't know, a couple of tens of thousands of dollars, how much you would be saving in efficiency and keeping your staff on the floor, not having to worry about stopping certain activities because you don't have staff, to escort people because they're all in training. You could do training kind of at will when you have time, you can do this module. By and large, you do not have to be sitting in a room looking at a PowerPoint to complete this training. You have a computer screen in front of you. It's your own mini PowerPoint right there. I don't need you in a room. We don't need to be signing everything off in a three ring binder when I have a digital signature on it now that you've completed it and it's time stamped. Yeah. I now know all that. Yeah. It's just highly inefficient. The few things that do need to be done hands-on via a practicum. So your CPR training, your AED training for our security staff, their defensive tactics, use of force, that kind of thing. Those need to be hands-on. That's fine. Schedule that. But there's no way that I need to sit in a room or an officer does or a case manager does to go over for the, I don't know, 10th time in their career, the same PowerPoint on how to write a report. Yeah. It's unnecessary. Do that at your desk. Yeah, and good <laughs> and good training and professional development leads to uh, retention of employees, right? They, mm -hmm. the, you know, and you can make you can make training engaging mm -hmm. and interesting mm -hmm. for people. And like you said, like you know, the option to be able to do things kind of on demand um, exactly. is yeah. really appealing to people, especially yeah. nowadays. Yeah. And we're seeing such an issue with recruiting and retention in law enforcement in general. Yes. Nobody wants to be a law enforcement officer anymore. There's too much liability. There's a negative stigma to it right now. It's difficult. And corrections has not been spared by that. In fact, they're probably getting the short end of the stick on this because with the, you know, post commission and the law enforcement um, officer accountability um, mm -hmm. legislation that passed through in 2020, you're seeing a lot more folks that are going into criminal justice, criminal justice fields are going straight into police departments. Whereas corrections used to be a stepping stone for that. It used to be a feeder up into that. So a lot of folks used to come out of criminal justice programs and get their feet wet in corrections. Some stayed, loved it. Some didn't and moved on to other law enforcement endeavors, but we don't even have that feeder anymore. Yeah. And so we're finding it in corrections, incredibly challenging to recruit people. And then when you stick a newly graduated criminal justice student who's only been using the best technology, the most engaging education, 
the best hands-on treatment into a room. They're like, yep, we're yep. going to have you work on a typewriter today. Oh, gosh. And we're going to have you sit in front of a PowerPoint that's from 2017. Let's see how long that person lasts before they get a better offer. And they're like, yep, I'm going to peace out for a place that's much more modern and up to date with modern law enforcement standards. Yeah. Jeez. If you're not making an effort to retain your staff, you will not retain staff. Mm-hmm. There is no reason why the training can't be more engaging, why there can't be more opportunities for training, why there can't be more opportunities for lateral movement. It's unfortunate that at Hampshire County, particularly for security staff, and I will say for medical staff as well, that essentially once you get in the door, if you are not in the absolute right position on day one, there's a high likelihood you are just an officer till the end of your career. without a ton of opportunity for advancement or even lateral movement. I, I don't know how you look at a career and think this is where I want to be for 20 years, knowing that that's the path you're walking. There are ways that we can change that through training, through opportunities for engagement, through opportunities for lateral movement, through opportunities in the community even if it's just a little bit, they're not asking for much. A day or two a month out of the facility in the community or a day or two a month training on something else that they can then bring back to the facility, whether it's on the security side, the medical side, the case management and treatment side, that they can come and bring back to the facility and share and teach their colleagues so that they feel that they've contributed. Give the staff ownership of something. I did this. I'm passing the information on. I've done a service. Yeah, that is so important. Um, you know, learning learning from your colleagues. People mm-hmm. people love that. Mm-hmm. Um, wow that that sounds great. I want to talk about treatment, um, sure. Caitlin, and um, a- areas where you're seeing room for improvement and things you're thinking about maybe wanting to do when you get elected. Um, Hampshire County Sheriff's Office is a licensed opioid treatment program, an OTP. They became that in October. Great program. I was on the ground floor of the creation of that program in 2016, 2017. Great program. It is largely funded through a grant. Um, And even as good as that program is, I think there is still room for improvement in the organizational structure and how we're using those grant resources and in how we're streamlining that position, there should be a focus on, so as the program stands now, there are dedicated nursing staff that do the uh, medication-assisted treatment and a lot of the re-entry services and things like that too. They should be tasked, I think, with more of the work. There is no reason why those um, nursing staff can't be doing um, TCUs, which are kind of the, the screening tools at the beginning, or why they can't be doing GIPRAs, which is another assessment tool that we use for um, reporting that we have to do to the DPH and to our grant providers afterwards. Those things are done by a case manager here, a case manager there. So if it needs to get done, you're waiting on somebody else's schedule Mm. kind of thing. There's no reason why it can't be streamlined in one office. That can certainly happen. There are other facilities that do that. And they simply relegate their pro- their program to literally a handful of people, five people, maybe do everything soup to nuts, start to finish across the board in terms of all of your medication, your treatment, your screening, everything. 
So I think even that program could be streamlined more. When we're talking about other kinds of uh, treatment, we're talking about vocational and technical treatments and education and opportunities and trainings. The budget is what the budget is, and there's not always room for a lot more. But I think what could be done is accessing um, federal money. The federal Perkins grant program has expanded. The second chance Pell grants have expanded to allow for secondary education and collegiate education inside of correctional facilities. Second chance Pell grants will be fully accessible to incarcerated individuals in 2024. Perkins grants are available now if you can find a partnering organization. And I think that all of that should certainly be explored. And I think that's easy to do if you start adding a part-time grant writer to the staff. There's yeah. not a grant writer. Yeah, stop. A- I'm sorry. I was going to say, Jen, Jen works kind of in the municipal space here. And it's one of the things we talk about all the time is kind of the money that's left on the table yeah, by not yeah. going after these types of grants. Mm-hmm. And exactly. not looking at it like on a holistic level either, like... Exactly. You know, having that expertise, like you're talking about a grant writer is like Mm -hmm. key, you know, like getting Mm -hmm. the grants and then having um, the people who are going to administer and manage those grants able to focus on that instead of focusing on the actual writing of the grants, which takes so much time. Exactly. Yeah. And that's where our department heads should be spending their time is administering those grants and making sure that all of those things are happening rather than exactly seeking out grants, writing grants, or even not being allowed to do that. And they're just teaching classes, you know, which is great, but I have, there are department heads there with significant experience and education that should just be facilitating grants. And really that's only happening in one Avenue right now. And that's the MIT program um, where we have a significant facilitation of a grant happening, but that could be happening over in the treatment department as well with vocational and technical education on a much larger scale than it is. What we need to start thinking about in this community is preparing the individuals in our care for release back into our community, into a community um, setting, into a job placement that is pertinent to the community and helpful to the individual. This is a house of correction. So this is short-term sentences. So folks who are sentenced to the jail are two and a half years or less. They're going to be back out into your community, pumping gas next to you, getting coffee, Dunkin' Donuts next to you. We should make them, we should make them giving members of the community, functional members of community. They should be doing a service to the community and giving back as well. We need to prepare them for that. So the training and the technical and the vocational programming should be geared to that. What does our community need and what is it that we can facilitate inside of the facility in a relatively short period of time to get these guys focused? Why are we not doing any kind of farming? Why are we not doing seed starts? Why don't we have a community garden? Turn that into something larger. Again, let's think about this over a six-year administrative period. Start with seed starts, start with a small garden, start with hoop houses, get to the point where you're now creating enough agricultural output that not only can you provide for the facility itself, but you have some left over to sell. Okay, use that in your treatment department and create a small business model, an entrepreneur program, where you can then take that product that you've grown, sell it at a farmer's market. How much are you charging? 
How are you doing this? Like create a small business model so that these guys, when they can leave, can go to any agricultural um, endeavor in this county, of which there are many, whether yeah. it's a farm or a garden or a CSA, and they can seek employment and be prepared. We should be offering these guys other types of trainings that they can get certification for and walk into an employer and say, hey, I have this 10 hour OSHA training. 40-hour OSHA training. Your hoisting certification is only 10 hours. Everyone in the facility should be CPR, AED certified. How many employers can you walk into without that? And they go, yeah, you have the job when you get that. For somebody who has limited community resources in general, and I mean housing, food, transportation, adding one more hurdle to them is often a barrier and not a hurdle. Take all of that away. We have the means in the facility right now to offer everybody CPR and AED training that was good for two years. You can walk out the door with that certification, walk into an employer and say, I have my 10-hour OSHA certification. I am CPR trained. I am AED trained. I am ready to start today. There is no reason why we can't do that. We need to start preparing people for the workforce. That's resume writing, job interviewing. That's how to answer the tough questions you're going to get asked in the job interview about this gap in your employment record because you've been incarcerated. You know, how to use the community resources that are available to you to do this. How do you use a library to do a job search? How do you fill out an online resume? How are you uploading all of the documents that they need for your resume? You know, even if this is an entry level job, there's a job application that often has to be filled out, help people fill that out so they understand what the questions are asking so that everybody feels confident to walk into that job and get employed. Yeah, I mean, and and, I mean, in my understanding, um, jails in, in some respect are supposed to be rehabilitative to a degree and help help people you know obviously society is saying you did something wrong and you're you're going to have to be punished for it in some way so we're going to we're going to lock you up but part of that too is like saying we're going to after you've you know as the popular saying goes have done your time like we want you to go out and be part of society and be a contributing um uh positive member of society again and i i mean i I love everything you're saying because we have to help people do that if we're going to, in my mind, take them out of society for a time. We have to help them and and give them the tools and support that they need to to reenter society and be, you know, contributing members. Am I thinking about this right? It's so interesting. So I just read an article. Mm -hmm. So I'm like thinking about education because I read this article and it was talking about uh, these uh, facilities, more so like in the um, in central and western side of uh, the country, where um, they've privatized a lot of this stuff. So they use the uh, the incarcerated people to like do all this work, but they pay them very very little, right? So it almost sounds like it's like quote unquote slave labor, right? So like they were talking about how they have like a contract with Whole Foods and they have tilapia farms and that they're training the people. But the inmates themselves like love the opportunities that they have to do all of this skill and the work. So as I'm listening to you talk about it, I'm like, you know, like it totally makes sense 
that that would be the direction to give somebody a set of skills where, you know, you don't, you know, everybody has a story, like you said. So how did they get to the facility? You know, how did they get, you know, behind bars and into a correctional facility, right? Like, you know, maybe they were lacking in skills. Maybe they weren't paying attention in school or, you know, whatever, but giving them that educational package back. And I think you goes back to your point originally, which is education of the general population about what a correctional facility does and what the intention is and really having people understand it so that they don't have that perception and that stigma of like, oh, these people are just in jail, right? Like they're supposed to just be sitting there, you know, lifting weights or, you know, doing nothing as a quote unquote, like drain on society as opposed to like, no, like you're saying, going back into society and being a contributing member again. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That was really long I don't know where I was going, but, uh, you know, I just read this article, so it was very, very, very timely. I don't know. And it's very true. If you talk to a lot of the individuals in the care of the Hampshire County Sheriff's Office now, what they're asking for is I want to do something. I want to physically be busy and doing something and learning a new skill that I can use. You know, the book work and the education is good and it's foundational. And in a lot of cases, it's mandatory education that's provided. And all of that is fantastic. But on top of that, we should be providing them opportunities where they feel like they can take a skill and learn a skill and then incorporate it into their lives in order to support their lives. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so, Caitlin, kind of the other areas of focus under your um, mission statement growth and engagement. I think we've talked about those in, in different ways uh, throughout this conversation. Is there anything you want to talk about specifically in relation to those two areas? I think I'd just like to talk a little bit just about the staffing because we see, like I said, you know, a little bit ago about there just being kind of a, a staffing crisis that we need to be doing education on a different level too. So not just community education, but let's push into the schools. I think, you know, me as a student way back when, and, you know, even now, it always was better to have teachers and professors who had lived experience and who had real world experience. And I think it's very nice to have educators talk about the criminal justice system, but unless you've walked the shoes, I think it means a little bit less sometimes to students. So I think it would be really to the benefit of the Hampshire County Sheriff's Office and the benefit of corrections if we had officers going out into schools, into the local colleges, into the high schools, and just talking about, hey, if you think criminal justice is a field that you're interested in, and whether that's on the law enforcement side, the court side, the parole side, or whether it's kind of, you know, the aftercare side, whatever it is for you, let me touch on corrections and what opportunities that could be for you. And here's, you know, what corrections really is, because I don't think corrections gets talked about there either. And I'll tell you in nursing school, we spent not a single second on correctional nursing. I do not even recall it being a paragraph in the chapter of my community health nursing book. It wasn't a discussion. And I don't think that there's very much time spent on it in any other areas either whether that's the security side of criminal justice or whether that's the case management side. When you're talking about, you know, social work, 
um, and sociology majors or social work majors, I don't think there's a ton of focus spent on corrections either. And I think having that real world lived experience talking to you makes a better difference. So not only are we providing that community service that way, hopefully it becomes kind of a, a feeding ground or a poaching ground for you know staff in yeah. the future. Mm. And not just on the security side, but other areas as well. Corrections is much more than custodial. It's not just the security side. There are nurses, there are educators and teachers, there's social workers and case managers, there's mental health clinicians, there's psychiatrists, there's psychologists, licensed clinical social workers, there's administrators, there's all kinds of things. It's not just custodial. And I think we need to be teaching younger people about opportunities more. And again, if this is just a stepping stone for you, it is, but there's going to be a handful of people that really enjoy the work. I wouldn't still be in corrections a decade later if I didn't truly enjoy the work. It's a very difficult environment in which to work in, but I also find it incredibly fulfilling. And if you can find that groove where you feel like you're fulfilled and you feel like you're making a difference, even in a difficult setting like that, it can certainly be worth it. And there's going to be people that you find that can tap into that and become ultimately a really, really great resource for you. And wouldn't that be nice to know? It's because you made the effort as a correctional facility to educate younger people. Yeah, I love that. I I, I mean... You know, I th- I think we, as a society, you know, um, let's set aside whether you know whether we should lock people up or not. Like we we do, and like I think we we push it we push it away. Like and you know we most of us the most we ever think about a correctional facility is like if we drive by the sign, you know, as we're going past an institution or we see something in a movie or TV and. You know, it's this, um, it's this whole world that is a big part of, of our society that I think we all can benefit from learning more about. Like I've learned a tremendous amount just, mm-hmm. just by talking to you, Caitlin, in, you know, in an hour or so, like things I never knew about. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And it's, so true in, it's so true in society. I think that we're all very um, pleased for the most part to have police officers um, engaged in our communities. And we are all very much for taking criminals off of the streets to make our streets safer. And we are very much, you know, for lawyers and prosecutors and judges for sentencing people who have committed crimes away. And then I think we as a society forget what happens next. Right. We read that last headline in the paper about, you know, so-and-so was convicted of this and sentenced to this and then poof, they're gone. Well, they're not poof gone. They go to a place where people like me take care of them on a day to day. And again, even if they're going to a state facility, it is not the majority of people that are going away for their life. They're going away for five years, 10 years, 15 years, and then they're coming right back to where they were. We have to make it so that when they come back, they are not worse than when we left them. Yeah. And that is such a multifold challenge to do, starting from the administration on down, what the philosophy and the goal of your, in this case, what your sheriff wants to have done and accomplished, and then how we're getting the staff to buy into that vision, and then in practice, put it out into the individuals in our care. Yeah, that's well said, Caitlin. Um, so you've been, so you're, You've been running um, for this um, 
this office now. Um, you're you're out there. You're engaged in this election. Um, I just I kind of wanted to ask you, what have you learned um, about yourself um, or or anything at all from the process of running for running for an office like this um, and being out there and talking to people? What are what are some of the takeaways from being involved in this process? I, it's not as hard to find common ground with people as I thought it was going to be in politics. It tends to be very, very divisive. You know, you're on this side or on that side. And I think particularly as partisan as politics are now that there is this notion that, Oh, if you're on that side of the aisle, I can't talk with you. I can't like you. I can't, you know, anything with you. And even though Hampshire County is by and large a democratic, you know, liberal kind of place, there are certainly plenty of areas that are not. And I have found that it's not as hard to make this a personal race as I thought it would be. You don't necessarily have to agree with every single thing that I'm saying but we can certainly kind of vibe on a human level and you can like me and I can like you and whether it is you choose to vote for me or not, at least we've had that opportunity to have a human connection across the aisle, which I think is challenging to be had in this society, but I haven't found it as hard as I thought it would be. People are more alike than they are not. I tend to agree with that. Um, Thanks for saying that. Um, all right. So it's a couple of weeks till the election. Um, what can people do to help you in the home stretch here? Visit my social media, like, comment, share, post, go to my website, subscribe to my weekly newsletter. It comes out on Fridays at noon. It gives you kind of the recap of the week and a little look ahead about what's going to do. Um, I have lawn signs still. If anybody would like to visually show their support, I'm going to get one. Sign. I'm going to get one. There's a on the website. There's a little button you can um, click on, <laughs> yep. Stomping Jen, that says get a get a lawn sign. Okay, I'm going to yeah, get all one. All we do is just ask you to fill out your name and address, and it's probably going to be me that drops it off at your house and frames <laughs> it in your lawn. So if you'd like a lawn sign, absolutely, that's the way to go. And just everybody go out and vote. It would be nice if everybody voted for me. Um, I know they're not, but it just, I want everybody to get out and vote. Yes. The primary elections tend to be poorly attended in general. This one will be a little bit more because there are so many up ballot races to be had for governor and Lieutenant governor. Mine is a very down ballot race. I understand that. So make sure you flip the page and you continue checking <laughs> boxes as you go along. Don't get tired. Um, but just if everybody gets out there and votes, but the more exposure that I can get, the more names, the more everything It's great. There is one more candidate forum that will be happening um, just before the election on the 25th in Northampton. If you go to my website on the events page, there will be details about that there. It will be a combination live forum and Zoom. So however you'd like to um, join us, it'll be, uh, I think it's scheduled for the Northampton Center for the Arts right now. It's going to be co-hosted by the Amherst and Northampton Leagues of Women Voters. Mm -hmm. So it should be a very interesting um, forum. And any questions that you might be having, you know, burning questions that you want to have asked, there are going to be um, questions from the floor 
taken. And if there's any questions that you'd like to have asked, you can certainly reach out to my campaign and let me know because there's opportunity for candidate questions as well to answer um, candidate questions and for candidates to ask questions. So absolutely, just get out there and spread the word. Tell your friends. All right, September 6th, people. Um of 2022, that's the primary, right? right? That's the primary. So, and then the, and then the general election, right, in November. Yeah. The general election will be in November. Yep. But the yep. primary is the most most important one for my race, right? Because yep. it'll largely be winner take all. So, right. so get out there and 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 vote. Show support. Yeah. Yes. Show mm-hmm. support. Okay. Excellent. And thank you, because you know, I just want to take like two seconds to thank you for. You're putting, a public official. It's hard. You know what this takes. It is very difficult to run a campaign there's a a lot that goes into this there's a lot of hoops to jump through absolutely and so thank you thank you thank you thank you too all right caitlin we're gonna uh we're gonna go into our last uh couple of um hopefully easy questions um so um help us help us and help people just get to know you a little bit more on the personal side. Like what do you like to do for fun when you're not running for sheriff, um, <laughs> when you're not working, you know, um, as a nurse, uh, what do you like to do to connect with yourself? What brings you joy? I'm a mom of two young kids. I have two boys, six and nine. So we are a sports family. All right. You could find me on the sidelines of a baseball game or um, basketball or my youngest really just got into tennis this summer. So nice. we're in tennis a lot. Um, so yeah, I'm on the sidelines of a lot of sporting events. I'm a heck of a gardener. I really enjoy my cucumbers and my lettuce and my flower <laughs> bushes out here. So I enjoy that a lot. Nice. Do you have a favorite way to prepare cucumbers? My favorite way is um, like a, you, you make this thing, uh, the cucumber salad that's uh-huh. in, vin- in vinegar. Do I use vinegar? Yeah. Sometimes it's just lemon juice and dill. Oh, yeah, that's it. It's lemon juice, dill, and cucumbers. That yeah. is the best thing ever. Do you have a favorite thing to do with cucumbers? Cucumbers with a lot of garlic, a splash of balsamic vinegar, and a splash of sesame oil. Mm. Ooh, that sounds good. Oh, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> that. little that sounds... Asian flavor, add some chili pepper if you want. Oof. Fantastic. That, that sounds, sounds delicious. great. Let's make that. Yeah, let's make that. We're going to get some cucumbers tomorrow. <laughs> Send us the recipe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Caitlin Sapita, who is running for sheriff in Hampshire County. Thank you so much yes. for spending this time and talking with us and educating us about this important office that you know we all rely upon um, as citizens. That's right. So Absolutely. I really appreciate you um, coming on the, the show and talking to us. I, I learned, yeah, I learned I, so much. I learned a tremendous amount and really enjoyed talking with you. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for this opportunity and this platform. I love your podcast and I hope you continue. Oh, oh thank, thank you. you. <laughs> um, our listeners, we have to say some things. I'm going to repeat this because the more we say it, I think the better. Get out and vote on yes. September 6th. Absolutely. Okay. You can get out there. Um, you know, think about everything you've heard here and cast your vote carefully. Okay. Um, thank you for listening, listeners. I appreciate it. Um, you know, without you, I would probably just sit here alone and still do this. But I still appreciate <laughs> you. Thank you for listening. Um, 
And there's some things you can do to help us, right, Stomping yes, Jen? Yes, you can share with a friend. You could subscribe. You can download our episodes. Yeah, you do leave all, a review. Yep, do all that stuff. Uh, Interact check, with us on social media. Yeah, check out our website. Um, we have we have recommended episodes up there. All sorts of cool stuff you can look at. We can learn more about Jen and I. And we do have a donate button. We do have a donate button. You can throw you can throw us some some bucks if you want to, but. Um, but what I want you to do this week is donate to um, Caitlin's campaign, okay? Because I'm all for people running for office, okay? Yes, absolutely. This is just a hobby. I don't need your money that much. So, all right. Now, um, anything else, Stomping Jen? <laughs> I think you've covered it. Okay. All right. Well, I think... I think check the boxes. I... I'm enjoying our conversation with Caitlin so much. I don't want it to end, but we're going to end it. Um, so, Caitlin, um, we typically just go around the circle here and say goodbye to folks in whatever way we want to do it. So uh, we'll start with you. Bye, everybody. Jen and Brad, thank you so much for having me and everybody who tuned in today and who is going to download this and who is going to go out and vote and request a lawn sign or share on my social media. I really, really appreciate everything. And um, this has been such a wonderful experience. So thank you. All right. Stomping Jen. Bye now. All right. I won't drag it out any longer. Um, (laughs) Bye now. This world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate. Those who have freedom will understand also its heavy responsibility. That all who are insensitive to the needs of others will learn charity. And that the sources, scourges of poverty, disease, and ignorance will be made disappear from the earth. And that in the goodness of time, all peoples will come to live together in a peace guaranteed by the binding force of mutual respect and love. I shall never cease to do what little I can to help the world advance along that road. 